You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido, reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening. Today we return to the book of Acts, as, uh, as James indicated. And it's okay if you're just joining us because uh, each sermon is, is stand alone and you'll be just fine. You'll be able to follow along just fine. Uh, the book of Acts, of course, deals with the very beginnings of the church. So it, it is in its history, but it is very relevant history. It's history that, that uh, teaches you and me um, a lot uh, as we... Uh, live our lives in faith in Jesus in the 21st century. Uh, Let me just, since it's been a a while since we've been in Acts because of Christmas and all, let me just very quickly bring you up to speed so you'll know where we are. Uh, You know, Acts starts really with the ascension of Jesus. Jesus has already been crucified, he's resurrected, he's been on earth teaching for 40 days. Acts begins with the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father uh, and uh, a command of Jesus to to his disciples that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? And then shortly after Jesus ascends, the Holy Spirit comes down on the day of Pentecost to around 120 believers all gathered together in one room. Uh, in a very short time, uh, the church begins to explode. And church historians estimate that in a, in a very brief window of time, there are probably 20,000 from that 120 to 20,000 Christians in Jerusalem. Um, with that kind of growth, and uh, the, of course the church is getting noticed, and it's getting opposition. And that opposition ultimately culminates in the first martyrdom, right? The first execution of uh, a believer because of his faith in Jesus, and that was Stephen. His execution supervised by a zealous Pharisee by the name of Saul, Saul of Tarsus, uh, who will, as we uh, will soon discover in the book of Acts, become converted to the faith himself and become Paul the Apostle, uh, a remarkable story. Um, But as a result of the execution of Stephen, of course, the believers are... uh, running for their lives. And there is this this big dispersion of the church. And you can really see God's hand in that because it it's 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 deploying the believers in the way that Jesus said they should go. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so they, they go out into Judea and they go out into Samaria. Uh, we, we had just read about Philip, uh, another, a colleague of Stephen. He, Steve, both Stephen and Philip were among the seven men that were selected to administer food to the, to the uh, widows, right? So Philip goes to Samaria and he has a very fruitful ministry there among the Samaritan people. Uh, a, despised race uh, in Israel, one that you know, the Samaritans and the Jews had really had no dealings with one another, and yet Philip goes in the name of Jesus, and Samaritans are being converted. Uh, Peter and John join him, uh, and they have a very fruitful ministry there, and, uh, and then they return to Jerusalem. So Philip, 
Peter, John, they've all just returned to Jerusalem. And that's where we pick up uh, the story now at Acts chapter 8. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 26 to 40. Acts 8, 26 to 40. It's printed in your bulletin. Uh, and if you're willing and able, would you please stand uh, for the reading of God's word? Starting at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He'd come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. It's God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit who is here. That as your word is proclaimed, we may hear it with joy what you would say to us today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. God is seeking and saving people. And his human targets are not what most of us expect. God is seeking and saving people and his human targets aren't what we aren't what most of us expect. I think that's a pretty good summary of what this event teaches us. And so what I want to do is just take that summary statement and break it down into two headings as we unpack this event. Uh, First heading, God seeks us, we don't seek him. And second heading, uh, God's human targets are from our perspective, uh, often unexpected and sometimes offensive. So God seeks us, we don't seek him, and then God's human targets are, 
from our perspective, often unexpected and sometimes offensive. First, God seeks us, we don't seek him. You've probably all heard a version of the phrase uh, that goes something like humanity's search for God, right? Um, It's expressed in various ways, but that's the essential idea. Humanity's search for God. That has become in our culture a virtual trope for religion. Uh, Listen to NPR or PBS anytime around Easter and you'll probably come across a program with a title like that, Humanity's Search for God. In fact, there's a book uh, written several years ago by a former NPR reporter by the name of Eric Weiner uh, who wrote a book called Man Seeks God, My Flirtations with the Divine. Didn't realize we could flirt with the Holy One of Israel, but there it is. Man seeks God, my flirtations with the divine. Uh, And that, you know, as a way of defining religion, that is a pretty good description of of how our culture defines religion, right? Man's search for God, man seeking God, humanity's search uh, for God. But though that may define religion, religion culturally, it does not begin to define Christianity, right? Because Christianity actually, and and this is really important to understand the difference uh, between Christianity and other religions, Christianity flips that, that statement completely around and says that it is God who seeks people, not people who seek God. God seeks people. Uh, And it's clear from what we just read in this account that that's exactly what God is doing. God is is seeking people. And and we get it from those supernatural bookends in this this event. You you see how it opened in verse 26. Philip gets divine direction, right? From an angel of the Lord, somehow it's communicated to Philip uh, to go to Gaza from Jerusalem uh, with the clear intent of meeting up with this Ethiopian official. And we know that's the intent because once Philip gets there uh, in verse 29, he again receives, supernaturally receives divine direction uh, to uh, join the, 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 uh, the Ethiopian official in his chariot. So that's sort of at the front end, and then at the back end, the other book end, at the back end of this story, with the mission accomplished, right? Ethiopian sought, Ethiopian saved, Ethiopian baptized. Uh, the, what happens? The Holy Spirit supernaturally carries Philip away. That What's translated carries, uh, carried away uh, in, our, uh, in our translation uh, probably is better translated snatched. Right? Uh, that's, uh, you look at the Greek lexicons, that's what they say. It's, the Holy Spirit snatched Philip away. I don't know what that was like. Kind of a trip. Uh, but he's snatched from Gaza uh, and lands in Azotus, which is 
the old Philistine city of Ashdod. Remember, Gaza was Philistine. Uh, Ashdod is Philistine. Uh, the, you know, the, the old arch enemies of Israel. And that's where f- the Holy Spirit is sending uh, Philip to, uh, to, to minister all along those coasts, uh, of those towns on the coast. So we know from this story that, that it, it is God from first to last. It's God who's the seeker here. But we, it's beyond the supernatural bookends here, I want you to see two other, two other ways we know that God is the seeker here uh, from this um, event. First, you know, one of, the, one of the things that bothers me about that trope, um, humanity's search for God, is that it sort of implies that God is hidden, doesn't it? Yeah. You don't, you're not searching for something that is obvious, right? You're searching for something that is hidden, that needs to be found. Uh, but, the, but, the, but, but God isn't hidden. God doesn't hide himself. Uh, the one true God is a self-disclosing God. He makes himself known in, in many ways. He tells you about himself. He tells you about what he's doing. Uh, I have a book in my, on my bookshelf, a w- wonderful old apologetic book now, uh, written by the late Francis Schaeffer, and I appreciate the title. It, it, the title refers to God, and the, t- the title is, He is There and He is Not Silent. Right. Uh, that's a good description uh, uh, of God. He doesn't need to be sought and found. He's, he's there and He's not silent. He's Self-disclosed. Look what what did the Ethiopian official have in his lap? Right, the Isaiah scroll. Right, that, right. Even before Philip gets to the Ethiopian, God is already disclosing Himself to the Ethiopian. This is how God breaks His silence through His written down word. And maybe today you've 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 heard. God, as we have read his word, and now you hear it preached. This is how God makes himself known. The second way, second indicator that God is, is, the, is the seeker here is the, is the characteristic way that God comes uh, in, in this seeking of the Ethiopian. Um, so, Right, Philip is in Gaza, this remote desert area south of Jerusalem, way south of Jerusalem. Uh, and he sees this chariot bumping along uh, the road, and Philip is supernaturally told to approach the chariot. And, and so in verse 30, what does he do? I mean, this is, this is a wonderful detail, and Luke is great with detail. What's he do in verse 30? He runs. He runs. Um, 
you know, imagine the scene, right? The, the, the chair, the, he's presumably standing there, Philip. The chariot is moving. Uh, in one sense, he has to run, but he's, but he's, right, he's closing the gap. Here's this chariot bumping along with this man reading a scroll on his lap, and, and Philip is running. He's racing, and as he's running, he's, he's closing that gap between himself and the chariot. It's a, it's a, it's really a wonderful, kind of a dramatic scene and right there I want you to see that Philip is being the feet and the legs of God. Right? Remember one of Jesus' most famous parables. Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. Right? I prefer to call it the parable of the running father because it's that character and the fact that that character is running that moves me the most uh, about that teaching story uh, of Jesus the running father remember remember the story right this this the young son is um, has deeply hurt his father he's deeply shamed him and dishonored him uh, by uh, demanding his his share of the inheritance turning his back on his father uh, turning his back on the family and leaving um, and um, and he goes to a far country and makes the son does and makes a, a serious mess of his life uh, but the father never stops looking for him Right. The father is always, uh, his eyes always scanning the horizon uh, for his, his son. And, and one day, uh, he sees his son from a far, uh, you know, from a long distance away. He sees his son. And, and that's the key moment, because what does he do? What does he do? Just like Philip, right? He runs. He runs toward his son. Exactly what this son was not expecting, right? Um, and, and a very undignified thing for a man of his sta- station to do, right? To hitch up one's robes and run, but that's what he did. And he embraced him, right? And forgave him, right? Um, it's a wonderful scene, and um, it's a very human scene, isn't it? It's a divine scene, and it's a human scene. You you may have seen that scene reenacted uh, uh, at airports, you know, as as uh, wives or husbands get off uh, an airplane, and there's a reunion as the spouse runs runs toward um, the other or a ch- child or gets off and the parents run or the parents get off and the children run. Uh, we, we don't see those as often now because of all the security measures. Uh, we used to see the, those sorts of reunions a lot. It's always a poignant thing to see. Uh, maybe you young people, so maybe you haven't seen something like that, but you watched the Disney movie Tangled, Right? And if you watch Tangled, you will remember, uh, right, Evie? (laughs) Calling out my granddaughter. Um, That at near the end of that movie, when the king and queen discover that their daughter is alive, Rapunzel, and uh, who they have never, she was kidnapped, and they had never stopped seeking her, and they they discover she's alive. What do they do? 
What's their first reaction? They run. They run to her. Um, See, this is how Jesus wants you to understand the Father. That's why he told that parable in part. Uh, And... Uh, and, it's, and, and, and we see it again, acted out in, in the way Philip runs after uh, this Ethiopian. He's, God is not a stern, prove yourself to me and maybe I'll love you kind of God. He's, he's a loving father who, who loves his children and runs to his children, even the children who have disappointed him. Even the children who have dishonored him. Even the children who have shamed him. God runs to them. See, so this story is all about the seeking God, the running father. Look at Philip. Um, before we move to the second point, then let me just give a quick word of encouragement to those of you here who are Christians. I hope this truth, this truth that God is the, is the seeker, he's the primary seeker, will give you hope and encouragement and, um, and courage uh, to get out there and, and run yourself after... Um, uh, after uh, people that God puts into your life and testify to them about the good news of Jesus as God gives you opportunity. I think of our brother, uh, Elder Newman Lee. New- Newman was a runner, man. If, you, you couldn't escape the parking lot without Newman running you down. That's, uh, that's a, you're right, um, the, the power is not in you, right? You, the, the power is in God. You're the tool in God's hand to reach these people, right? That's a powerful place to be, and it's an exciting place to be. Now, having said that, don't think that every witnessing opportunity you get is going to be teed up for you like it was teed up for Philip here. I mean, is that like the best opportunity? I mean, if he'd blown that one, you, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd flunk him out of church. Uh, I mean, this was teed, teed up for him here, slam dunk. And sometimes God will do that. And sometimes you'll have those encounters where, you, you know, there, it's just like it's been ready-made for you to come in and sort of uh, do what Philip did. Uh, and those times are wonderful. Uh, but it's not always that way. All you have to do is stick with us as we move through the book of Acts to, re- to realize that, 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 that at many other times God is going to take you into times of witnessing where your testimony is not well received, where your testimony may be opposed. I mean, we, right? For as often as we read the, the sorts of encounters in Acts, we'll, we'll see probably more where 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 the testimony is 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 not received but that's okay right god's in control god's seeking and and we just have to trust and, and obey leave leave the results to him and the, the other thing i want to just say as a as also as a as a i guess a word of wisdom um as you often you know, often as you seek to believe Jesus and seek to obey Jesus and seek to be a witness for him as you can, 
you are often going to be taken in directions that you don't expect, um, uh, and and you're going to be put in places uh, that run against the values of the world. Uh, you're going to be put on a trajectory that looks like anti-success, right? Um, I, th- I think about Philip here. Um, Philip is now, right, when we opened that story up, where is he? He's in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the big city. Jerusalem is where everything's happening. Jerusalem is where the important people are. Jerusalem is where the apostles are. The apostles did not disperse uh, after the execution of Stephen. They stayed uh, in Jerusalem. So there's Philip, and he's rubbing shoulders with Peter and John, and he's there, and, you know, that's... Got to be exciting. That's, you know, it, it's obvious that this is, you know, this is a happening place. Uh, and, but then what happens? He gets an order to go where? The desert. By yourself. Right? Rise and go to Gaza. And as Luke reminds us, this is a desert place. Uh, not exactly, uh, you know, what Philip would have, uh, c- you know, perceived as uh, this is a, this is a strategic ministry move, right? This is a move designed to really maximize my influence and produce, you know, evangelistic success. Um, you know, we tend to think that way, don't we? Um, and yet, in a way that Philip couldn't know in a way that nobody could know except the Lord. That, you know, God used that sing, this single event, right? Sending one man to the desert to meet one man in the desert. And he uses that single encounter to begin a process that converts an entire continent. The Ethiopian eunuch opens up Africa to Christianity. That begins a, a thriving uh, of Christianity uh, in Africa. You know, we have to be remember, and sometimes it's in, in our cultural environment here, it's, we need to be reminded that Christianity is not a white, Western, European, American religion. Right? We, it, our faith is deeply rooted in the Near East. It's an Eastern religion, right? Our, our, we're, we're rooted in the Judaism of Israel, and our roots continue to be there, right? The, they, the, the, Israel is the trunk of the tree into which we have been grafted. But the fact is that once Christianity branched very early, branched beyond Israel, and it's, this is what we're reading about it right here, very, very quickly, Christianity becomes an African faith. Yeah. We, it, 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 it's, it, it's so much of the early growth of the church, so much of the energy of the church, early Christian thought, early Christian theology, early Christian heresy, as people screwed up, was coming out of Africa. I mean, think about men like Tertullian and, of course, Augustine, one of the great thinkers of all time, African. 
I've told you about this guy before, but it's a good example, a good more contemporary example of, uh, of what it is to obey Jesus in, in this, like Philip, and, and realize that this, I'm doing something that the world doesn't really understand or value. Uh, and that's uh, the, the, the story about William Borden. I finally looked his picture up. It, William Borden was the young heir to the Borden Dairy fortune. Um, he was a really handsome uh, guy. He was a great athlete. He was a great scholar. Um, and, uh, of course, fabulously wealthy as the heir to, this, uh, to the family fortune. He graduates from high school early. This is early. This is the 1900s, even before the 19-teens. Um, and he graduates early. He's like 16. And his parents do something that sounded amazingly contemporary. They gave him a gap year. And uh, what they what was a little bit different about his, his gap year is they said, go around the world. Right? We'll pay for it. And so William Borden takes a year and he goes, travels around the world. He happens to be led by a, uh, a Christian minister and missionary. And it's during this trip uh, around the world uh, as he hits cultures like, like uh, uh, Milo was talking about that William Borden, as, as this young teenager, you know, 16, 17 years old, comes to the conviction that God wants him to be uh, a missionary. Um, and he writes, and I read some of the letters where he nervously writes his parents and his friends to tell him this, uh, and uh, they weren't excited. Uh, his dad uh, told him, uh, do not make any decisions like this until at least you're out of college and you're 21. Yeah, he wanted him to be in the family business. One of his friends wrote to him that, you know, if you become a missionary, you're just throwing away your life, wasting your life. Well, none of that persuaded uh, Borden. He did go to Yale. He finished Yale. He had an amazing career uh, at Yale. But as soon as he got out, he got, got into a mission agency and traveled to Egypt to begin language studies, to minister proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to the Muslims. And while he's in language study uh, in Egypt, he gets spinal meningitis and dies. It, it made worldwide news, his death. Uh, he, you know, he, was, he was well known, his family was well known, and uh, uh, the press had already weighed in on what a, what a waste of a life he was m- making of all his advantages, all his education, and all his money. Um, and, and, and of course, the response to his death was, uh, you know, tragic waste, tragic waste. But God used the faith and the passion and the conviction and finally the death of William Borden to inspire thousands of young people, young men and women, to sign up and go and onto the mission field uh, in, a, in a way that could never have happened otherwise. So I ask you guys, you know, where's God calling you? It will often be to places that the world says don't go or to talk to people that the world says aren't worth talking to. Where's he calling you? 
Where is he calling you to go? Where is he, who is he calling you to witness to? Don't be surprised if the answer uh, goes against what you, the world will tell you. That's okay. Follow the Lord. You know, see, see what happened when Philip, Philip obeyed the Lord. Okay, that's the first point. God seeks uh, we don't. Second, second point, God's human targets are, from our perspective, often unexpected and sometimes offensive. Well, who was the, the we had one human target here, right? The, the Ethiopian uh, official uh, in, in the reign of uh, Candace. Candace was not her name. It was, that was a throne title. Uh, she was, uh, this was an empire ruled by queens. Um, this is not modern day Ethiopia. It's further south, uh, closer to uh, modern day Sudan. And uh, in there, uh, I mean, he was a highly placed official, right? He was essentially the uh, Secretary of the Treasury, right? Big deal, big job. Um, he was simultaneously, therefore, an insider and an outsider, right? In his home country, uh, he was the consummate insider. This man had status, he had position, he had power, he had wealth, right? But it's apparent for all those insider assets uh, that he was not satisfied, that that there was some kind there must have been some kind of emptiness in him why can why can i say that why could we reasonably infer that because he just made this super long super difficult journey by chariot from the sudan to jerusalem that's not something one does lightly um he'd gone to jerusalem to fill a a hole in his heart. He'd gone to Jerusalem to find God. Now just a sidebar here, right? Money, power, position, influence, those those are not bad things in and of themselves. But they will not cure. Listen, people, they will not cure your spiritual hunger. Uh, they, uh, you, you live for those things, you'll die for those things. And, and that is a waste because none of it goes with you when you die. Um, you can have all of those things, money, power, position, influence, and still you're going to still be you. Right? You're going to still have to look in the mirror, still have to listen to your conscience, still have to answer those nagging questions, right? What is my life about? Why do I really matter? Uh, Why am I not as good as I know I should be? To whom am I ultimately accountable? What's going to happen to me when I die? And maybe most poignantly, that hunger we all feel to be fully known and fully loved. Because we all fear that if we're fully known, we won't be fully loved. And there's something in us that drives, that's driving us to be somehow, somehow fully known and fully loved. That's what he was after. That's why he was in that chariot. 
And of course, the untold sad part of this story is that he would not have found his answer in Jerusalem. Right? Why? Because in Israel, this consummate Ethiopian insider is an outsider. He is a double outsider. Not only is he a foreigner, and a very foreign-looking foreigner, right? Uh, A Gentile, right? But even more seriously, he was a eunuch. Um, And the Mosaic Law was very clear about eunuchs. Um, I'm going to read the Bible here. Deuteronomy 23.1. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the, of the Lord. Pretty strong words. Um, uh, and that's, of course, the Ethiopian eunuch. Um, he had paid a high price for his money, his power, his position, his influence. Whether that was a voluntary castration or whether it had been done to him, maybe by his parents, uh, to fit him for that work. Nevertheless, because of it, he had no access to the God of Israel. Zero. Could not get into the temple. Could not really even approach it. And now he's returning home. And still trying, still trying to deal with that spiritual hunger, that void, that desire to be spiritually known, to be fully known and fully loved. And how do we know that? Because he's reading Isaiah. He got his hands on a scroll of Isaiah. That would have been, that was not an insignificant expense to buy an Isaiah scroll then. But he, apparently he did, and he's reading it, uh, and he's come to the chapters that deal with this mysterious figure in Isaiah called the suffering servant. And he's confused. He doesn't know who he is. And as Philip joins him, he's reading of all the servant songs, the servant song in Isaiah 53, right? Like a sheep, he was led to slaughter. Like a lamb before its shear is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Actually... The, the more literal translation is for his life is cut off from the earth. And Philip, of course, beginning right there, beginning with that verse, it says, begins to tell this eunuch what? The good news about Jesus. No, this is not the prophet. He's talking about somebody else, and that somebody else is Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. And you know he had to have pointed out other things about Jesus from Isaiah 53, like the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That he was then, after the iniquity, our iniquity was placed on Jesus, then he was pierced for our transgressions. Crushed. Crushed for our iniquities. That he was cut off out of the land of the living. You see, this eunuch, through Philip, was learning about someone, Jesus, who knew him, knew about his sin, knew about his, his suffering, knew his situation, knew his loneliness. 
knew that ache in his heart to be known and loved, who knew what it was like to be crushed and cut off. Can you imagine how the eunuch heard those words? Right? Given what had happened to him, given Deuteronomy 23.1, to hear that Jesus had been crushed, that Jesus had been cut off. And for the first time, this eunuch is having his spiritual hunger satiated. Right? He's, he's getting filled up, right? He's, he's getting filled up by Jesus, right? He's, he's learning of, the, of Jesus' identification with him, Jesus' knowledge of him, and yet Jesus' love of him, right? He's learning about Jesus' mercy, his forgiveness, his technical word, substitutionary atonement, right? Jesus being cut off so that he would never be cut off from the land of the living, Jesus being cut off so you would never be cut off from the land of the living. And no doubt, no doubt, and I, I looked this up. I looked, I, Bible software, you look up eunuch. What does it talk about eunuchs? Well, it talks about, there's a key passage about eunuchs in Isaiah 56, real close to Isaiah 53. So I actually went to the website of the, of the Dead Sea uh, Scrolls because there's a, they have a scroll of Isaiah in the Dead Sea Scroll. And, and you, you can actually look at the actual scroll. And you see, when the scrolls opened up to Isaiah 53, almost certainly you could see 56. You didn't have, it, the way it's written and the, the way the columns are, it would have been in their field of view. So it's not un, at all odd that, that he would have taken him to Isaiah 56, not just by the virtue of the subject matter, but by uh, the virtue of its proximity to Isaiah 53. But listen to what it says about Isaiah 56, because this is a huge turnaround. This is something, this is how the Messiah, this is how Jesus transformed the Mosaic law, right? What did Deuteronomy say? No, right, no access, no access to the eunuch. Right? He shall never enter, never enter the, uh, the assembly. He's, he, he'll never enter the assembly of the Lord. And listen to Isaiah 56, three, and five, 3, 4, 5. Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Just put yourself for a moment in the shoes of that eunuch. Imagine hearing that. Right? What a word to that eunuch. But friends, also, as I wrap this up, what a word to our generation, right? We are a generation of people who are increasingly resorting to sexual alteration as a way to fulfillment, as a way to peace, as a way to identity. And we as Christians tend to look down our nose at those people. We as Christians don't know what to do with those people. 
We know they aren't one of us, but we don't know what to do. What we need to do is what Philip did. Because they are not outside, though they may not be one of us, they are not outside of Jesus, and they're not outside of Jesus' love and grace. God gives the sexually altered who repent and put their faith in the Lord a new name. He draws them in to his house and gives them a new name, a name better than sons and daughters, a name that will never be cut off. The sexually altered have had parts of their bodies cut off, but God in Christ will give them a name that will never be cut off. The name of Jesus. Jesus puts he put his name on this eunuch. That's what was happening when Philip baptized him, right? We are baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Friends, our church should be pulling in these people. We should be pulling them in and loving them because Jesus does and Jesus has not written them off. And we dare not either. So when the Philip asks when the eunuch asks Philip, and it's a great question, what prevents me from being baptized? What prevents me from being baptized? And we don't get the verbal answer, but I, I suspect I know what the verbal answer was. Nothing. Nothing prevents that eunuch from being baptized. Why? Because when he repented and put his faith in the suffering servant Jesus, that righteousness of Jesus, the obedience of Jesus was credited to him and all of his sin and all of his shame was moved over to Jesus and Jesus died for it. So friends, may we not be a church that's just full of respectable people but full of a, a church full of people who know they're sinners and know that Jesus died for them. Right? The sexually altered, the sexually marginalized, the sexually confused will never, never find the peace they are looking for outside of Jesus Christ. Guys, let's show them Jesus. Let's show them Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this uh, event by which you brought Africa into the, into the faith. And uh, we're so thankful for the way you work, Lord, beyond our expectations and beyond our hopes, beyond our imagination. Thank you that you embraced even the eunuch and the, how that gives hope to so many. Lord, we've, we have... We, we know people. I know people who are transgender. We have people here who, who, are, who have family members that are transgender, Lord, and we think that, that, that they are because of surgery beyond hope, beyond f- repair. But Lord, thank you for the hope here that you're going to that, that you're going to give them an everlasting name if they come to you a name that will never be cut off thank you for that we pray all these things in Jesus name amen you've been listening to Ted Hamilton 
Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.